Welcome to Heart of Worship Church Podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play, or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. Hi, I'm Miranda Wright, and this is day 95 of our Upper Room Prayer Campaign. And today we're going to pray, Lord, let revival come. The Lord had given me a word to release prophetically about half a year before I met anyone or knew anything about the coming One Blood Revival. The Lord had given me this complete word on revival that encompassed both biblical and historical revivals. What initiated them? The purpose in them? and the tactics of the enemy to hinder them. And upon seeking the Lord today on what to say as we press in to pray for revival, I thought there's nothing that I could say in and of myself that could be more perfect than what the Holy Spirit said. Because while I could not physically see any possibility of him placing me in the midst of this revival that he was showing me that was coming, I knew prophetically that he would. And this was the word that he was releasing ahead of the flood so that I would know that it was from him and not from myself, that it was from the spirit and not from my intellect. So today I bring you the pure word of the Lord given before He brought the revival together and placed us all in it. This message is straight from the Holy Spirit. Tonight, we're going to talk about revival. Revival. God had started speaking to me last week during the week and started jotting stuff down. And then Sunday morning when that song started playing, let revival come. And then Danny's sermon about intercession, it kind of all ties together. I've heard it said that revival is God breathing life on that which is near death. But I would say no, revival is God breathing life on that which is already dead. Yeah, it's resurrection power. It really is. It's resurrection power on the impossibly deceased. True revival absolutely changes the environment of a people or a place. Most biblical revivals were birthed from redemption from judgment through prayerful lamentation and intercession. Danny covered a lot of that intercession Sunday, and really, truthfully, intercession is what births revival, and it usually comes out of a prayer of lamentation because you know that there is a judgment coming. Great example of that is the greatest revival in all of recorded history, the biggest revival in the Bible, which is Nineveh. It was facing sure judgment. It was an impossibly dead spiritually situation. And then when it was turned around, it became the greatest revival in recorded history. That's what revival really is. We, we have, you know, the little church services that people call revival, but really that's, that's just church service. It's a good church service, but it's not, it's an extra church service, and, and it's good. Those things are needed. Revival can happen in a person. It can happen in a family. It can happen in a church. It can happen in a location. It can happen in a nation. But if the nature of the word revival is revived to bring something back from the dead, if you're reviving it, then it was dead and you're bringing it back. That's why sometimes you hear the the saying that revival is when church folk get saved. It's it's when a dead church comes alive. (laughs) But revival in a climate, in a region changes that region. 
Revival is where the kingdom of heaven invades the earth in a real and present way. Because what else brings resurrection power but the kingdom of heaven? What does the kingdom of heaven manifest when it comes into the physical realm? Deliverance. Deliverance is going to always be your, one of your main um, evidences. And we may even do a lesson on that soon. But it's going to be one of your main evidences that the kingdom of heaven is present, that the power of heaven, because when the power of heaven overrules the demonic, it proves that the kingdom is here. That's why when John the Baptist was saying, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when Jesus began to cast out demons, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is here, because that's something that never happened before Christ. There's no record of anybody casting out demons in the Old Testament. There were people healed, there were people raised from the dead. Elijah and Elisha both raised the dead, child, dead children. There were examples of many miracles in the Old Testament, but there's really no example of deliverance, of demons being cast out. So deliverance is always a manifestation of the power of a greater kingdom with a greater authority stepping into this realm and taking authority over the enemy. That brings revival. Because when you cast those things out, that life is going to change. When you take authority over a region, that area is going to change. So deliverance is part, a major part of any true revival. And if you look through revivals throughout scripture, you will always see that deliverance was a huge part of it. All of your New Testament revivals, it always came to says, and they preached Jesus and many unclean spirits went out, you know. It, was, it always manifested in the form of casting out spirits. And I think that's one of the reasons you don't see that much true revival now because a lot of these spirits are welcomed and they're allowed to stay. There's not much deliverance, so there's no true power of the kingdom being demonstrated there. So deliverance is always a major part of any real revival. Now, deliverance can manifest in a person being set free from spirits, but it can also manifest in healings. Because over 70% of Jesus' ministry was in deliverance. And most of his healings happened by way of casting out spirits. Now, we know that not every person that's sick has demons. Because sometimes Jesus said, they asked him, how had this man sinned? And he said he hadn't. But his sickness was for God's glory. In other words, he was lame for the sole purpose of God being able to heal him to bring God glory. So we can look at that as like maybe Dahlia Knox with um, Nathan Morris's revival kicking off. She was a dedicated, laboring servant of the Lord for 20 years. We wouldn't say, well, she had demons. She just needed to be delivered so she could be healed. No, her healing was for a purpose, a time, and a season to spark a revival. It was for God's glory. So not every sickness or, or thing like that is from demonic, but many times in Scripture... When he cast a spirit out, the person was healed. So demons do cause ailments. There's even an account in the, in the scriptures where Jesus literally called out and cast out a spirit of infirmity. What do we consider infirmity? Is a form of ailment. It's sickness. She was uh, hunched over, and when he cast it out, she was able to stand up straight again. So spirits can cause physical ailments. So those are all manifestations. It will be deliverances, healings, life-changing salvations, change of atmosphere and culture over a region and people. When the authority of God and his kingdom is demonstrated against the works of the devil and his kingdoms, you will have revival. Revival should be the norm. 
but it's not. Revival comes through authority. It comes most by rhema, right, the spoken word of God, because the spoken word of God is backed by authority. You know, we've talked about it before, how it says in Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit is the word. And when you look it up, it's rhema. It's the sword. And then it talks about in Revelation, how the sword will come out of his mouth. When the rhema word of God, when you take that time in prayer and supplication and sacrifice to really get that word from the Lord and his word for that time and that season comes out of your mouth, it's his rhema. And then he backs that up with the authority of heaven and he will send miracles if need be to validate the message and the messenger if you're walking in righteousness and are worthy of the vocation so that he can back you up. And then you will see things break off. Then you will see lives change. Then you will see people delivered. Then you will see things set free. And these things spark revival. Forget about programs. Programs don't work. Programs create counterfeits, but they don't create revival. Programs are nothing more than theater. Rome burned while watching theater. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon had revival because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego burned. So if you have the fire of God burning in you and his rhema word is coming forth, you're going to see lives revive. Even if, like, like Will said, it's in a personal life and a personal situation, if God sends you forth to use that, you will see that resurrection power, that revival in somebody's life when the rhema comes through you, when his word comes through you. But if you're following programs, if you're following uh, formulas, if you're following, well, this worked for this person, so I'm going to do it that way, but God never said do it that way, then all you're going to have is programs, and Rome is going to burn while you're playing theater. It doesn't work. Nineveh was the greatest revival in history. Nineveh was not changed by programs, plots, prestige, or platforms. It was saved by a rhema word from God. A right now present on time word from God. The word was of judgment. They lamented for the judgment. They believed it. They lamented. They prayed. They fasted. God forgave. Revival broke out. Revival comes to the least deserving, but the most needed, making the religiously prideful, envious, and angry. Most of the revivals in history were hated by the church because it happened to people and through people that the hierarchies didn't think deserved it. Well, those were the people that most needed it, so that's where God put it. And then that makes people angry, and then they come against, and then... The vision sets in and eventually it gets torn down. We can look at examples through scripture of people who brought revival, either in personal lives, in the nation, in cities and cultures, in the church. Hannah, we just went through the story of Eli, so we're fresh on the, the story of Hannah. Hannah's travailing prayer through her intercession and her prayer and her travail and her communion with the Lord God spoke, she had faith in it, and she literally birthed revival. She birthed Samuel, who revived the nation, because there was no word from the Lord. Remember, it said that the Lord had departed from Eli, and for a season there was no vision, there was no word from the Lord, until God started showing and speaking through Samuel. So through her travailing prayer, she literally birthed revival for a nation. Travailing prayer is always the first step to birthing revival. You can look at any major revival through history. Azusa Street started with prayer. Huh, 
Pentecost in the Bible started with prayer. Um, the Haystack Revival started with prayer. The Lewis Island Revivals, two little old ladies in prayer, travailing prayer. Revival always starts with prayer. There's no program. There's no performance. There's no we need to get this person or that person. It's prayer, prayer, prayer. It's always the seed of revival. Esther, birth revival. Again, salvation from, from a very dire situation. She birthed revival through intercession, through lamentation, through prayer and fasting. She gained the trust and favor of a king through building a relationship with him. These are keys to seeing revival, either in a person that you're interceding for, in your own life, in your church, or bigger. Intercession, crying out for others, is God going to bring revival without it? Remember Danny's lesson from Sunday when, G when God said, I looked for a person, who, a man who would stand in the gap and make up a hedge. I looked for an intercessor, but I found none, so I had to pour my indignation out, which means that God did not want to have to bring judgment. But because of the justice of God, because his word cannot return void, that's not just the good words, that's the warnings also. When he speaks forth something, he is bound by his own law because he is not a man that he should lie. He has to obey uh, his own edicts. So therefore, if he says, if you do this and this, then I will do this, or because you sin, you will die, he has to obey his own law unless somebody else, unless, uh, right, he wouldn't be just if he didn't. But if you think of it as a court system, he is a judge, he has set forth a law. This people has broken the law. He must enact judgment. But if someone will intercede, if someone will pray, if someone will step up as a lawyer on their behalf and beg for mercy, then it frees him to allow that mercy, which he wants to give but can't because he's bound by his own law until somebody asks for it. So he wants the intercessor. And the truth is most, most reprieve from judgment comes through revival. So what he was really saying, if you think about it, this land was faced for judgment, and God did not want to have to pour wrath out on it. But because no one was selfless enough to bring revival, the land was destroyed. Because the intercessor would have had to have been someone who was righteous enough to stand in between. Because only the righteous can be intercessors. So a person has to be selfless enough to lay down their own will, their own desires, their own sin, and take up the burden for a people. Once you lay down your own ambitions, your own desires, your own sin, and take that burden up, he is wanting, he is willing, he is desiring. Therefore, God desires, there's so many people, I want to be used for revival. Well, here's the great news. God desperately wants to use you too. But can he? He wants to be able to use you. You have to first lay down all selfishness, all pride, all agendas, all desire to be seen for vainglory. You have to walk in righteousness so that he can put this authority on you. Because when he puts the authority on you, you represent him, so you have to represent him rightly. But he wants to do it. And the saddest thing about that passage that Danny covered, and it says he looked for someone who would be able to do this and found none, so he had to pour his indignation out. It means that if revival doesn't come, wrath comes. The only thing that can postpone wrath is revival because it changes, it takes the kingdom back. God has to judge 
the kingdoms of sin. But if you can turn the tide on that sin and take the kingdom back, then it stays the judgment just like Nineveh, at least for a season. If God is putting forth a cry for intercessors, it means that he's putting forth a last-ditch effort before judgment. And if there is no intercessor that rises up and takes that place, judgment will fall. Now, even when the intercessor rises up, there are occasions when the people still refuse. But at least there is an option. If there is no intercessor, there is no option. So we look at Esther as a type of intercessor. She prayed, she fasted. She took time to build a relationship with the king. She didn't just bust open the gates of the king's chamber and say, hey, you know, this is what I want done. She went in, she, she had dinners with him, she slept with him, she built a relationship and a character and a favor with the king so that when she did ask, he wanted to grant her her request. And true intercession comes by those who have become a friend of God. You have to build that relationship with the king. You don't just up and decide one day I'm an intercessor. You can decide I would like to be and start building that relationship. So start now. Build that relationship with God. Moses birth revival. I, I don't think there was probably a more exciting revival than when they left Egypt. Or anyway, that's how it looked in the, the movie. <laughs> that would have been a pretty exciting thing. But that revival was birthed out of a lot of travail and heartache. And the thing is, is that it took obedience to the smallest detail of God's instruction. No assumptions. When you represent God, you have to represent him as holy. And you have to represent him rightly. And I often think about when God gave Moses the instructions on how to build the temple and how detailed those instructions were to the inch in some places, you know, and it's like if anything had not been followed to the letter of what God said, he would not have built something worthy of God to inhabit. He would not have dwelt in it. And if you want a service that God will inhabit, you've got to follow his instructions to the letter. You can't assume anything. You can't say, well, this looks like it'll make sense to me. This is what I see and feel, so this makes sense to me. This is what the other church down the street did, so we're going to do that. When you do that, well, this is what they're doing and it worked. What you're really doing is what Israel did whenever God said that he wanted to be their king. And they said, no, we want a king like the other nations. And so he said, okay, well, I'll give you Saul, but you're going to regret it. I think a lot of churches do that. Well, well, we want a pastor like the guy down the street, or we want a church like the guy down the street. And God's, I'll give you what you want, but you're going to regret it. When they already had better. Yeah, they were a little kingdom, but God was their king. They had better. I think there's a lot of uh, little churches that already have better because they have God in the presence, but they see some of these other things and they think, well, I want a king like, like the other nations, and so they get a Saul. But Moses birthed revival by following God's instructions to the letter, even when they made absolutely no sense at all. And if you want to see revival, you're going to have to learn to trust God, no matter what it looks like, sounds like, when it doesn't make sense. Trust that he's smarter, he knows, he sees farther. It may not seem like a big deal to you, but if he's saying it's a big deal, trust him because he knows that maybe even five years down the road it's going to be a big deal. He sees the way everything ripples out. Trust him. Follow it to the letter. 
And another thing is, is that if you don't follow his instructions, he can't inhabit it anyway because you're in rebellion and his presence can't endorse it. That's what we kind of saw in the Eli story. Such a small thing with Eli, but that he wouldn't obey God in this one little area. And so finally the glory departed because he maybe didn't even see the ramifications of the destruction that it was causing when these people that represented him were not listening to him and allowing things that were affecting the souls of others. Eventually he said, I can't endorse this anymore and the glory departed. That happens in a lot of churches and a lot of services and the services just go on, but his presence isn't there and it's doing more damage than good. Jesus brings revival because he is the ultimate intercessor. He revives. He is revival. Jesus is revival. Standing in between and taking the blow to stay judgment is more than just words. It will come by way of persecution by the very people that you are trying to save. Taking Jesus' example as an intercessor. You choose to be an intercessor so that you can bring revival to a people, place, person, or region. You have to remember Christ's example. He stood in between and he took the blows, but the very people he was trying to save hated him for it. And I can tell you from experience, anytime you ever start interceding for someone, they are going to be the first ones to attack you. You cannot allow bitterness. You cannot allow any form of, of offense to set in because that's what the devil's going to always try to use to, to turn your heart away from the, the task. They are always going to be the first ones to attack you. While you're starving yourself, while you're fasting, while you're praying, while you're weeping, while you're feeling God's heart of brokenness on these people, they're going to be slandering you in the streets. They're going to be tearing you down. They're going to be calling you prideful. They're going to be doing whatever the devil can cause them to do to try to get you to lose the heart of an intercessor for them. Remember Jesus. Paul said, if I would have fainted, in other words, I would have given up had I not remembered the sufferings of Christ. And I can say, I don't think there's anyone that I've ever truly interceded for that I knew. Now, I'm not talking about just people you pray for, because we pray for a lot of people. We pray for people we don't even know. But there have been people in situations where I knew the wrath and judgment of God was about to fall on these people. And in every case, they always, while I was praying and interceding, there ended up being a battle where they were coming against me for no reason at all, but it's just the enemy stirring. But remember Christ and take the hit and keep on praying. They will hate you. That's intercession. Right, and I would say that, that I'm pointing out that when you stand in between the judgment and them, it's not just the judgment that you're taking, but you're going to also take the stones that they're throwing too. You're in the middle. There is a judgment coming this way you're taking, but they're also throwing stones at God, and you are representing God to them also. So you're taking hits both ways. It's a very hard place to stand. But they will hate you. They will attack you. They will slander you. They will accuse you. They will lie about you. They will hurt you in every conceivable way. Keep forgiving, loving, speaking what God gives you and interceding. He will validate you eventually. And your taking those blows on their behalf in love will be what proves that there is something different and real about your Jesus. In the end, the love is the only thing that proves the validity of Christ in you. Love, lament, pray, seek, hear the rhema, speak the rhema, see revival. It's really very simple but very hard. The blueprint is simple. 
Walking it out, not so much. Revival comes through intercession, but intercession requires righteousness. This is one of the greatest hindrances to revival because very few people are willing to lay down their sin and their selfishness and their agendas and their ambitions to be able to walk in the righteousness that is required and their grudges to truly be an intercessor that can bring in revival. Pull up Revelations 1, 5 through 6. The good news is, even though it's rare to find people that are willing to do this, it doesn't take a lot. He's looking for one. He was looking for one man who would intercede, one man who would stand in the gap, one man. That one person could have stayed the judgment of that entire land. He's looking for one. It would be nice to have a hundred, and he could if people were willing to do it. But it might seem absolutely impossible, but the truth is, is they really only need one. So if you determine in your heart, I'm going to be that one, it can still happen. We're going to talk a little bit about being kings and priests. Revelations 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So if you are washed in the blood of Jesus, saved, sanctified, a true Christian, not just in name only, but truly a Christian, a follower of Jesus, then you are a king and a priest. So what do priests do? Well, in the scriptures, in the example that we were given in the Old Testament, because it says that these things were given for our example and to whom the ends of the world have come, the purpose and the place of a, king, a priest was to offer sacrifices. Go to 1 Peter 2, 3, right? So if we are all priests, and you might remember a while back I had did a lesson about the uh, peculiar priesthood where God talked about in the Old Testament where he wanted to make Israel a kingdom of priests that would then go out and minister to the entire world, but they wouldn't keep his commandments, so he couldn't entrust them with his presence. So he changed it and made the Levitical priesthood to keep his presence in the temple until he could bring a better priesthood. Through Christ, he did bring that better priesthood. And through the cleansing of Christ's blood and the infilling of his Holy Spirit, we become the temple and we go out and we become that peculiar priesthood that he so desperately wanted to bring his presence to the world. So if we are truly going to walk in the function of a priest, then we have to understand that the process of a priest is to offer sacrifice. So if you want to qualify, then you have to qualify in this area. And we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 3, it says, If so be ye have tasted of the Lord's graciousness, to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, in other words, we're temples, and holy priesthood, to what? What is the purpose? To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So if we were a priesthood, our purpose is to offer up sacrifices. Only in the Old Testament, it was physical sacrifices. In the New Testament, it is spiritual sacrifices. We're not going to go through all the scriptures, but there are scriptures that talked about Jesus offering up a sacrifice of prayer 
sacrifice of praise. So for us, the spiritual sacrifices that we have to be willing to offer up to God daily, because the priest did this stuff daily, is prayer, fasting, intercession, worship, and also sacrificing of the self, the heart circumcision, to be crucified of self, the, to let yourself die, and yourself will die so that God's will can live through you. These are the daily sacrifices that you have to offer up in order to truly be a priest in this peculiar priesthood, offering up these spiritual sacrifices so that he can use you in the office of the priest. And of course, we all know Romans 12, 1, we've all read it before, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, therefore, to be a representative of the kingdom of heaven requires holiness that you obtain by making your body a living sacrifice, sacrificing your will, the things you want for God's will, so that you can be set apart holy unto him, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, walk out God's will perfectly so that your life can be a testimony of how perfectly God's will works. Most people don't trust or believe or put their faith in God's will because they've never seen an example of how much it actually works. When you just trust God the way he says to do it and they see the kingdom of heaven manifesting through you, then they're going to want it too. But they don't because they have no example of it. That's why we overcome by the blood of the lamb what Jesus did and by the word of our testimony, and because we love not our own lives unto the death, we were willing to sacrifice, to be a living sacrifice, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, to lay down our will, our desire, our plan, our agenda, our logic, to walk in his perfect will so that others could see through the testimony of how that played out that his will really is better and that he can endorse it and you can see revival come. Truth is, the gospel works. Truth is, the church doesn't work because the church doesn't use the gospel very much. They use their own concept of it, their own twisting of it, their own doctrine, but they don't just use the gospel. Trust it, trust it, trust it. So if you walk in the function of the priest, because it says you will be <coughs> priests and kings, if you walk in the function of the priest and do all of these things, then you can be a king. So what is the function of a king? What does a king do? He rules and demonstrates authority. Go to Mark 16, 17. In Mark 16, 17, it says, These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. The authority comes through the name of Jesus. Without getting into a long study on this, uh, the rod, you know, the Bible talks about my staff and my rod shall comfort them. The rod, Aaron's rod, the rod always represented authority. So Jesus' name is authority because uh, you remember the story in the Old Testament where God had chosen Aaron to be the high priest. Aaron was an archetype for Christ because Christ is now our high priest. He chose Aaron to be the high priest, but then the heads of all these other families are like, well, who are you to, to say you know, who's going to be the high priest? We're all just as worthy. We should be the high priest. And so God said, look, just get all of their rods represents authority the the head of each family the authority of each family had a rod bring all their staffs lay it before the holy of holies 
They did. The next morning, they come back. All of theirs was still dead sticks. No real power there. But Aaron's had budded, brought forth leaves, fruit, and had almonds on it. And their names were all written. The name of each family, it says, was written in the rod. So the rod represented authority. His had life-giving resurrection authority because it was backed by the kingdom of God. They just had dead sticks. So his name being written in it represented the authority of that family. Therefore, Christ's name is our authority. We speak that authority in the name of Jesus. It is our rod. It is our staff. And it does comfort us because it is our authority. It is the power of the kingdom of heaven. He is now our high priest where Aaron was before. His name carries the authority. So in his name, we shall speak with new tongues. We shall take up serpents. And if we drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt us. We shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And thus give the first port. They shall cast out devils. These are all signs of God's kingdom and authority in Jesus' name that follow those that believe. So once you walk in the function of the priesthood, giving up those daily sacrifices, those spiritual sacrifices, not physical but spiritual ones, then you can walk in the kingship, which is the authority. So we walk in priesthood and in kingship, and you will see resurrection power. And, and keeping the flesh under subjection it covers so many areas because you typically think right off the bat, you think that it's going to be a, a lust issue, which that does apply, but it applies to food, which is fasting. It applies to emotions. Keeping your body in subjection could be keeping your temper in subjection. You know, it's going to apply in every form or fa Actually, if you look up the fruits of the spirit, every one of those is a example of keeping the body in subjection. Patience temperance, love, joy, gentleness, kindness, long-suffering, all of these things are subjection. Right. Revival comes by professing, glorifying, and demonstrating the power and authority of the name of Jesus over the enemy. Sacrifice your own will for his. There was a free will offering in the Old Testament. The free will offering, I think, is a good uh, play on this because God is looking for someone who will freely choose we are trying we have to walk after the example of christ and christ freely chose to give up his life in other words he didn't have to do it and he wants people who will freely choose to give up everything to follow him and when you're willing to lay it down and follow him he's willing to use you and back you up and i love what he told peter um when peter asked him he said lord we've given up everything to follow you and he told peter he said there is no man who has given up house or property or wife or children or any list is a whole bunch of things that I that will not be given back to them more in this life and in the one to come. You can never give up more than God can give back. Even Job, who it wasn't a free will, it was taken. But even he, in staying faithful, got back more than he lost. Sacrifice your own will for his and make it a free will offering so that you can be a priest and God will then entrust you with his authority and you can function as a king and let revival come. And I love the phrase, I, I wanted to even name the lesson, let revival come because it really is an issue of letting it come because God wants it to come. The only thing keeping it from coming is that he's looked for a man and found none. You know, it's kind of like that, that night when I had went to pour the, the candles on the altar, and it reminds me of that, where 
I went and I thought the candles had gone out on the altar. And when I went and I looked, there was still a little flame. But what I realized was that the wax had melted and it was starting to smother out the flame. And so all I did was pour a little of the melted wax off and then the flame burned bright again. And God told me everything that was needed for it to burn bright was already there. You didn't need to add anything. I thought I was going to have to go relight the fire. Everything was already there. You just needed to get rid of some stuff. You know, we're a three-part being. We have a body, we have a soul, and we have a spirit. And that candle has a three-part that has to be all working together for it to function. There's wax, there's a wick, and there's a flame. You can look at the wax as like the body, the wick is like the soul, and the flame is like the spirit. But the wax, which was the flesh, was smothering out the flame. And all I needed to do was to get rid of some of that wax, and then it could burn bright. And I think that we have everything at salvation that is really needed to bring revival but there's a lot of stuff we got to pour off first so that flame can really start to burn bright. And really most of the issue is God showing us the stuff that needs to be gotten rid of so that he can burn. You're either blocking judgment or you're blocking revival, one way or the other. And it's, it comes down to will, I think, that because the Lord's been giving stuff all week, me and Heather both got manas this week, words about, about self-will. And really, that's the issue, because if you will walk totally in God's will, revival is going to come as, as a byproduct of it. But it's when you walk in self-will that you hinder it. So he's trying to teach us to trust him and lay aside everything we think and just trust what he says and just let revival come. Don't hinder it. Don't try to make something that's not. Don't try to do what you think should be done. Trust what he says, even if it makes no sense, even if you don't know why he's saying it. Trust what he says and do only what he says, and it will come as a product of that. So revival requirements or holiness. Because in order for revival to come, what you're really doing is he is using you as a representative of heaven to bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth and demonstrate its authority over all the powers of hell and all of the natural forces of this earth to show that God truly is greater. But he cannot entrust you with that authority if you're not willing to lay down self-will, walk in his will, and walk in holiness. Be set apart holy unto him. Holiness is required. And any major revival that we can look through in history, key thing was holiness. God will not endorse any doctrine or movement or person that does not endorse holiness because he is holy and we have to endorse his character and represent his character. Another requirement for revival is unity. There isn't a place in the New Testament where we didn't see right before revival broke out. It always said, and they were praying in one accord, one mind and one accord, and then the mighty rushing wind, and then the suddenlies. They always come when you're in one mind and one accord. So unity is a requirement. Now that's unity with the spirit, not unity with the world. Because a lot of times they'll use unity as a um, excuse to try to say you have to come into agreement with sin. No, you stand against sin in love, but be in unity of the spirit. But never allow any form of offense or division of that manner to set in to the heart. Be in unity with the spirit and in unity and in peace with those around you and pray, and pray, and pray. And unity also comes into effect, I believe, in prayer because it says where two or three are gathered and ask anything in my name. I am in the midst and I will hear and all of these things. So when there is unity in the prayer, there is more power in the prayer. 
So if everybody is praying for revival, there's more likely going to see revival. If everybody is praying and interceding for this person, then you're likely to see heaven move more for this person. If everybody is in agreement. Now, if you have 200 people and they're all praying for their own personal needs, there's not going to be as much power in that as in 200 people selflessly praying for a sincere need. When Paul was imprisoned in the New Testament, it says that the church stayed up all night praying and an angel went and led him out of prison. They were unified in that prayer for his protection and safety and God moved in miraculous ways to do it. So unity is a requirement. Obedience to God's voice is a requirement because it's only going to happen one way and that's his way. It's not going to happen your way. It's not going to happen the way you think it should happen. So you have to seek his voice to figure out how he wants it to happen because it's never going to be what you expect. So don't think you could ever assume to figure out how it's going to happen because you're not going to get it right. (laughs) You have to seek his voice for the way he wants it to happen. And it is also a requirement that you walk in selfless lamentation. Selfless lamentation. Broken heartedness. The prayers of a broken and contrite heart he will not despise. If your heart is truly broken over sin and you're praying over that, it's going to move the heart of God. His heart is a compassionate heart and his heart is moved by compassion. And if you have his heart, seek his heart, get his heart, you will have a heart of compassion. And then you will begin to have selfless lamentation because his heart is ever in selfless lamentation and intercession. That is his heart. Truth is, is that Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us. We're just helping him. I love it. I saw an image and I had shared it with some people and I shared it on Facebook this week. It was a, it's a statue in some park and it's a statue of Jesus and he's, he's crouched down on the ground. He's fallen and he's dragging the cross. And it's a picture of a little girl, a toddler. She can hardly walk and she had run up behind it and she's trying to pick up the cross. And it said that, you know, it had the caption on it that said that, you know, she saw it and she ran over and she said, oh no, Jesus needs help. And she ran over to try to carry the cross for him. The truth is, he's already in painful, prayerful lamentation and intercession for us. He's looking for people with the heart of that little girl that says, oh no, Jesus needs help and runs over and tries to carry that cross. He's called us to do it. It says in the New Testament when Jesus was giving instruction for the church, that before you do anything else, and this was instruction on how to have a church service. It says before anything else, let prayers and supplications be made for all men and intercessions for all men. So he's saying more important than the preaching, more important than the singing, more important than the passing, the collection, more important than than anything. Before you do anything else, let prayers, supplications, and intercessions be made for all men. All men includes the ones you like and the ones you don't like. All men. Another interesting point is that Jesus ever liveth to make intercession for us, but we live to make intercession for the lost. It is our job to intercede for the lost. That's why Jesus said he was looking for someone willing to do it and found none. I would sure hate to stand before Christ one day and hear him say, you know, I just needed one person. Where were you? To know you lived through all of this wickedness around you and he could say, look, this is what could have happened if I only needed one. It's usually in that intercession that he begins to drop those things in your heart. 
that if there is something he would have you say or do, he doesn't usually reveal that until you've been interceding and, and you start to get his heart for them. Because God's word is a two-edged sword. And if you have his word but not his heart, you'll cut people up with it. So he doesn't usually release his rhema word to you until you've gotten his heart in intercession. So when you're interceding, you're growing to have his heart. You're getting closer to his heart. You're receiving his heart. You're feeling his heart for them. Then he will give you the word that you can then release to them because he can trust you to release it the way he would release it with his heart. And so the more you intercede, the more God will actually use you because that rain is going to come because he's going to trust that it comes with his heart. I've always said that even in a word of judgment, because the wicked do face judgment, and there are times when God even releases a word of judgment. I don't believe a person should ever give a word of judgment to anybody that they have not wept over in prayer first. And even if it's a spur of the moment, maybe you only saw this person once and God had to bring it through you in that moment, if it truly was from God, then you're going to weep over it for a long time after and continue to intercede and pray for them. So Jesus, we look at that example, even, you know, yes, he cracked the whip and threw tables in the synagogue, but rewind, he wept as he made the whip. While he was making the whip, he was weeping over their sin. He had the heart of God before he went in, and even when he went in with the, the word, the judgment, and the harsh, and the rash, but his heart was broken for them. And so for us, even when there is judgment, and, and I fear and I tremble when I start to get words of judgment for somebody, you know, it's, it's a fearful thing. And I think if our heart is ever joyous at the concept of a judgment, then we don't comprehend the judgment and we don't have God's heart on it. Because think of it, he's literally, if you go back and read that whole chapter that Danny preached out of when he was talking about how he was looking for the one, if you read the whole chapter, it describes their sin. And this people was vile. It was every bit as bad as America in its worst state today or worse. These people were really bad. And then you come all the way to the end and you're seeing but he was still hopeful. He still wanted. He did not desire. It was not his will that this people or anyone should perish. He did not want the judgment to have to fall, but he's bound by his own law because of his righteousness. He is not a man that he should lie. And if nobody was willing to plead for mercy for them in the courts of heaven, then he had to follow through with the edict of the law. And yes, we are under a new covenant now, but the law still applies. We're under the law of Christ and Christ, but Christ's love, but there is still a law. And the truth of the matter is, is that if a person is not saved and washed of the blood and atoned for, then they are actually still under the law. The law didn't disappear. We were just brought into a better law that we are atoned for permanently because of the blood of Jesus. But if a person isn't atoned for, cleansed, saved, changed, and set free, filled with the Holy Ghost, then they're actually still under the law. They're under the law of sin and death. And all of the, the law applies to them that if they are in these sins, these judgments still are on them. That's why if a person dies in their sin, they still go to hell in judgment because they still have to face the penalty of the law. They have not been atoned for the price has not been, well, the price has been paid, but they've not received it. So it's still there. It's a serious situation. 
And we have to get God's heart on it. And to get God's heart on it, we have to get on our face before God and ask him for it and start praying for these people. Make you a list if you have to and start calling those names out. And it's hard to know how to pray for people that you know are facing judgment because they're vile. <laughs> how do you pray? You just mercy, Lord, mercy. Save them, Lord, save them. But you don't know the words to say. So I, this is the way I do it. Call their name out and start praying in tongues with your mind set on them. And then as you pray in tongues, if you have the, the gift or the ability to, you're gonna, then the Lord's words are going to start to come with direction on how to pray. If you don't have tongues yet and you don't know how else to pray, pray mercy, pray salvation, pray deliverance. And sometimes the Lord will put something specific on your heart that you can pray. But for me, a lot of times I find myself praying in circles when I'm trying to pray in my own understanding because I'm like, Lord, save them. Lord, deliver them. Lord, set them free. Oh, but Lord, if they won't change, you need to do something about them because they're hurting these people. And then you're praying in circles. You don't know where to go with it. It's better to pray in the spirit and let the spirit lead. And then if God wants you to speak something, then the spirit will manifest that to you. And then what comes out will be rhema with authority and it'll actually do something. Because the rhema is the sword, which is attack, authority. It's what actually goes forth and wins the, the fight. Uh, if God's not in it, it's just symbols and tinkling brass or whatever it said, you know. It, if God's power isn't in it, it's really just noise. So for me, the easiest thing to do is to call their name out, pray salvation, pray deliverance, pray repentance, and then just pray in tongues with my mind focused on that person until the spirit releases something to me. Or I feel a release in my spirit and I go on to the next person. Really, once you get started, you prime the pump, the Lord will start revealing to you the ones that he really wants to move on in this situation. And it's usually going to be the ones, not always, but it usually will be the ones he's going to have you interact with. Because as you intercede, he's going to begin to put things in your heart and revelation in your heart to be able to minister to them with that rhema that he's birthing in you for it to bring revival. But we do still intercede for bigger things like the nation. We, you know, for pastors, I pray, I've always prayed for God to bring truth and to revive the pastors and the, you know, people you may not see on a regular basis. But you never know how God works that out to turn it around to cause you to affect that too. You never know. <coughs> so whatever he puts on your heart. But I'm, follow the leading of the spirit. But my advice for those who just sit there and are just like stumped, where do I start? What do I do? Get you a couple of names. And pray, start there. Because once it starts flowing, then stuff's going to start coming to your mind. All right, so revival requirements, holiness, unity, obedience to God's voice in the smallest detail, selfless limitation. If it's about you, heaven will not endorse it. Make it about God, his kingdom, his righteousness, his glory, his will, and he will endorse it. Represent him rightly in meekness, holiness, selflessness, and humility, and he will endorse you. You prove yourself to God, and God will prove himself through you. Go to Psalms 24, 3. Psalms 24, 3 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, 
nor sworn deceitfully. These are all criteria to be used for revival. Clean hands. Who can ascend into the hill of the Lord? That's the presence, the habitation of God. Clean hands, purity, holiness, righteousness, pure heart. One who has not lifted up his soul to vanity. It has to be about God. It can't be about you. It can't be about your church. Watch what you say. Watch what you do. Don't ever let the glory be about you, your church, your denomination. It has to be about God and his kingdom. Nothing else because he will not endorse your church. He will not endorse your denomination. He will not endorse you unless you are endorsing him. And then only by proxy that by endorsing himself, he must endorse you, will it come. But if you put yourself there in any form or fashion, he won't endorse it because he's not here to build your kingdom. He's here to build his. One who has not sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, seek him, seek him, seek him. It's required. We have to seek the Lord because if you're not seeking the Lord, you're not getting his will. If you're not getting his will, you're not doing his will. That's the sermon Danny said on, did on that king who the Bible says he did evil in the sight of the Lord because he set not his heart to seek the Lord. If you're not seeking God for his will, then you will by default do evil because you're going to end up doing your own will and it's not going to be in God's perfect plan. Seek thy face. Those that seek his face, seek his face, seek his face. I love it. One time Will had made a comment about, we talked about people that just want God for what they can get out of him. And Will said they seek his hands and not his face. You can't seek his hands. You seek his face. You don't seek the gift. You seek the gift giver. You seek him. Seek him. Seek his face, O Jacob. Selah. Lift up your hands, O ye gates, and be lifted up ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. These are requirements for revival. Go to Ezekiel twenty-two thirty. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore, have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith the Lord God. He didn't want to. He had to. He was looking for someone who could bring revival, but he found none. So there was no option left but wrath, because there was no one selfless enough to be his vessel of mercy. Revival is the only thing that can stay judgment on a land. It turns the tide. It takes the territory back to the kingdom, just like Nineveh. Second Chronicles 7, verse 12. And I actually had this lesson before Danny preached his sermon, so I didn't know his sermon was going to be in that, and I had all these passages already, so it definitely ties together. Yeah. Second Chronicles 7 verse 12 says, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer. Right? Prayer. That's key. These are, we're still in the topic of things that are required for revival. Prayer is required. I have chosen this place to myself 
for a house of sacrifice. Sacrifice, purity, and sacrifice is a requirement. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, judgment. These things were required to stay judgment. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, seek his will, his word, his way, his face, and turn from their wicked ways, repentance, then I shall hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Revival. Now mine eyes shall be opened and my ears attend unto the prayers that is made in this place. Miracles. All right. Now we're going to look at the hindrances to revival. Misrepresenting the Holy Spirit. We remember that Moses was not allowed to enter into the promise for one reason that is recorded in Scripture, and it says specifically that he represented God not as holy before the people. When he got frustrated and he hit the rock, he was a representation of God to the people the second time. The first time he was supposed to, which is the dangers of just doing what worked last time. Don't ever just do what worked last time. Seek God and do what he's saying to do this time. Because just because it worked last time might make God mad this time. The people frustrated him, and he acted out in the flesh, and it misrepresented God to the people. And it says in Scripture that he did not represent God as holy before the people. In other words, he misrepresented God's character in that moment. And there's nothing that's going to grieve the Holy Spirit and cause it to depart quicker than misrepresenting his character. And that was really the only recorded thing about Moses that he ever, and you know, it says he was the meekest man on the face of the earth, and he, he endured so much. You know, to us, it's like, wow, that was very harsh of a judgment for such a minor thing, but to God, it's not minor when you misrepresent his character to the people. There's a, I mean, I'm quite very paraphrasing, but there's a passage in the New Testament where I think it was Paul was basically saying, don't envy your leaders and pastors and, and want to be that because they actually face a harder, harsher judgment. They're held to a higher accountability because when you represent God, he takes it very seriously. And when you put yourself before the people and they see you, and it's not just the preachers, but any person, the musicians, the people praying, anyone that is seen as a representative of the church is representing God. Jesus, whenever he was fussing at the uh, Pharisees in Matthew 23, I think it is, he, he made the point to them that you heap upon yourself a greater damnation because you know better. You should be instructing them in holiness is what he said. So misrepresenting the Holy Spirit, which is what happened in Eli's story because he was allowing the, his children to misrepresent God's character before the people and so the Spirit finally departed. So if you misrepresent the Holy Spirit and God's character, and this can be a personal issue too within your own self, because there are times when, like for Saul, the Holy Spirit departed. For Samson, that was really Samson's issue. He, he kept sinning, and it was misrepresenting the Holy Spirit. It was misrepresenting God's character. Here was a man that was a judge over, over Israel that needed to represent God to the people, and in his sin... He kept misrepresenting God's character. He was walking in, un in unrighteousness, and so the Spirit 
finally departed. I think it's one of the saddest verses in the Bible when it says that he went out and shook himself as before, but he knew not that the Lord had departed. Let's say you're, you, you're a big-time evangelist. The Holy Spirit's moving. The power's flowing through you or even just who you are now, and God's really using you, and you're used to stepping out in power, and the authority's there, and the kingdom's there, and the word's there, and, and God always moves, and then you do all of the motions that you did before, but you don't know that the Lord has deported. I love it that uh, Catherine Kuhlman, she used to always say, you can go through the same motions, you can say the same words, but if the Holy Spirit's not there, nothing's going to happen. And it's the most important thing in the world not to grieve the Holy Spirit. I think it's Ravenhill that would say that the anointing is the hardest thing in the world to get and the easiest thing to lose. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The Lord had led me to a, a Derek Prince sermon this week, which since it's Independence Day, I would recommend y'all go look it up. It's on YouTube, and it's called Independence. Um, but the whole message was about the reason God makes you wait is to break you of that independence. And Moses is a great example of that because, like you said, he killed the, the guard trying to take matters into his own hands. That was a, an independence. But then after taking him out into the wilderness for 40 years with his father-in-law tending sheep in the middle of nowhere, he had to strip him of that independence before he could go back and use him as a deliverer before they spent another 40 years in the wilderness stripping the Israelites of their independence so that they could enter into promise. So when God's putting you through that wait season, it's because he's trying to strip you of your independence and teach you to listen to him. Choose him, his will. And to, that will bring a lot of revelation and clarity to your life that if you're willing to lay down that self-will and that independence and just do what he says and trust his voice and his leading, it will shorten your wilderness season. So, hindrances to revival, misrepresenting the Holy Spirit in character or in word. So, we talked about in character, um, if there's sin in the camp, deal with it, we did all of that. But in word applies too, so if there are errors in your doctrine, it will hinder the Holy Spirit. Now, God is merciful, and he knows that there are things that you are learning and growing, and when your heart's not, you know, there are things that I hear in early David Wilkerson sermons that he has corrected himself on in sermons 20 years later, and that's expected because you're learning, you're growing, you're seeing the way things work together, you're understanding those things. I'm talking about serious error misrepre that misrepresent the truth of God's word, God's doctrine, God's righteousness, God's holiness, the miracles always come to validate the message and by proxy the messenger, but he will not validate something that misrepresents him in word or misrepresents his word. Therefore, you can see the issue with some doctrines in some churches that are so dead that they have to try to explain away the power of God and the operation of the gifts because they don't have it, and the reason they don't have it is because the Holy Spirit will not endorse them because their doctrine misrepresents the truth of God's word. So because they're misrepresenting the truth of God's word, God will not endorse them, so then they have to create more doctrine that, makes, that explains away why they don't have the, the endorsement through gifts, signs, wonders, power, authority, and all of these things. You understand what I'm saying? Right. We can see an example of this in Janice and Jambers. 
um, Janus and Jambres were the magicians, went into Egypt, and he brought his staff, and he threw it down, and it became a snake. And then the magicians of Egypt came out, and they threw their staff down, and it became a snake. They were mimicking, they were counterfeiting God's miracles. And there are movements who can mimic and counterfeit, and they will even manifest themselves or present themselves as churches and representing God and preaching the gospel, but there is no power, there is no authority in their services or in what they preach. And so you'll see there's no deliverance in their churches. There's no healing in their churches. There's no signs. There's no miracles. There's nothing that proves that the kingdom of God is stronger than the kingdom of the enemy. There, there, it's a dead religion. And then Moses' snake goes and it swallows up Janus and Jambres' snake. The power of God overpowers because death is swallowed up in victory. And it shows that where the authority is, is where the message of truth is. And so if the kingdom of heaven is backing you up with authority, with deliverance, with healings, with life-changing salvation, with people being set free and delivered and changed, then that authority is backing up your message and overpowering the false. You can see that in the first few uh, plagues over Egypt, um, Moses would come and, and he would say, okay, God's going to do this plague. And then Janus and Jambres would come and be like, well, we can do that too. And then they would counter mimic the plague. And this went on for like three or four plagues. And then finally one come, I, I think it was the one with the gnats or lice or whatever it was. And the plague went out and they're like, we can't do that. And then at that point, it was determined Moses is God is real. And when you have these other churches, they preach a similar gospel. They can do similar things. But when it comes to the point where we can't do that, there's no deliverance in our church, but I see deliverance there. You can't deny that this is what's real because this is what the power of the kingdom of heaven is endorsing. Get the message right, and he will endorse it. You have to preach his gospel. The gospel works. The gospel always works. The gospel still works, and the gospel always will work. But you have to stick with the real gospel. He will not endorse anything else. Hindrances to revival. Competition versus cooperation. You have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will cooperate with itself. And if everyone is following the leading of the Holy Spirit, it will work in unison as one moving body. But if there, if there is any spirit of competition that rises up in anyone's heart, the competition is going to always work against the cooperation of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to start to have ripples in the water. And then you're going to be in disunity, and then you're not going to be in unity. You're not going to be in one mind and one accord, and you're going to start to have a weakening of that spirit until eventually it departs. Be cautious and be careful to never have a spirit of competition. Always remind yourself, it's not about me. It's about him. We are just vessels for the Holy Spirit to use. It can never be about I want to be seen. In fact, Smith Wigglesworth said, if you want to be used mightily from God, the first thing you have to do is be delivered from a desire to be seen or heard. And I, I love that. I stick to it. It is absolutely true. Another hindrance to revival is polluted gates, mostly mouth gates. You can't have, it says in James, that salt water and fresh water cannot proceed out of the same well. If you want pure living water of God to proceed out of the well or the mouth gate, 
which is where the rhema comes, which it brings the power and the authority and the presence of heaven. You want to know what the gate is? The gate is your mouth, a pure mouth. But the pure mouth opens up from a pure heart. That's why he says, who can ascend into the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Your heart has to be clean. The mouth gate has to be unpolluted and undefiled. Be careful what comes out of your mouth because grieving the Holy Spirit will come quick, no quicker than by what you say because your mouth represents him and your mouth can misrepresent him. Pride, arrogance, selfishness, self-promotion, um, hatred, bitterness, envy. And this is something you have to be careful because you still have to preach the truth. And the truth can come across that way sometimes. But it goes back to what we were saying earlier about prayer and intercession and weeping and you know praying over these people until you have God's heart for them before you deliver the word. Let the word come forth, but make sure it comes forth from his heart and not from yours. Isaiah knew that his lips were unclean, and so he could not deliver the word of the Lord. And so he basically had a circumcision of the lips. And we have circumcisions of the heart, and we do that by taking these things to the Lord in prayer and acknowledging, Lord, there is a sin. I have sinned against you with my lips. I need you to circumcise my heart in this area. So let the, the Lord deal with your heart issues, and then out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth will speak. So let your heart be circumcised, and then you can speak. But if your mouth gate is polluted, it will shut down your access to heaven, and there will be no revival. So deal with that issue. Offense, and I'm almost through. Offense is a hindrance to revival. Danny's been covering this for quite a while, so I don't think we have to go too much in it. But offense forsakes mercy, and mercy is the very reason the revival is there. If revival comes to stay judgment, and that is a form of mercy, then offense will prevent you from having that mercy that will pray that revival in in the first place. You won't have the heart of an intercessor if there's offense in the heart. And the intercessor will have every opportunity to be offended because remember, as Christ is our example, everything and everyone that you're interceding for is going to come against you. And if you let the root of offense set in, you won't have the heart of mercy that prays that revival in. So offense is revival killer. Pride, arrogance, kingdom building, it all breeds division. If you're trying to build your own kingdom, your own platform, your own church, your own name, these things will hinder revival because it breeds division in the body. It will also cause your mouth gate to be polluted and it will cause offense to set in to others. Drawing fires in versus sending fires out. This is something I've seen very much and it very is very displeasing to the Lord, very displeasing to my heart also. When God begins to move in a church, the devil will get in someone's ear and often begin to tell them, you need to bring everybody in unto you because you're the only one who has it right. And the Lord had showed me this a long time ago um, about a ministry that I was praying for. And I saw it like they had a little fire and then... I saw out there were a lot of other little fires, but they were going out and they were bringing all of the fires into them until they had a big bonfire, but everything else around them was darker. It was pitch black. It was worse than before. In this ministry, they were constantly bringing in people that had gifts and had talents, but maybe they were called to that little church over there, or maybe they were called to minister to that group over there, or maybe they were called to this area over here that nobody thinks about, but they knew there was an anointing on them, so they pulled them all in 
to their ministry. And yeah, they got a little brighter, but they made everything around them so much darker and it did no one any good. We are called to send fires out, not to bring them in. You start fires and you send them out. It's not about bringing a ton of people into your church. It's about raising up people that can hear the Lord and be used of God and sending them out to start fires elsewhere so that it can get brighter out there and not darker. God said, go and tell. I've heard it said that the modern church has changed the Great Commission from go and tell to come and hear. It's good to come and hear sometimes, but as long as after they've come and heard, they go and tell. They don't come and hear and stay and die. Unbelief. Unbelief is the ultimate revival killer. It says that those who left Egypt, what a great revival. They didn't enter into the promise. That would have been a greater revival because of unbelief. So preach faith. If you want to see revival start breaking out in hearts and in people, preach faith. Preach faith. Preach faith. Stir up that faith. Pray. Purify, fast, sacrifice, seek, intercede, cry out for mercy in the face of judgment for a people or region in faithful prayer and intercession for a season, whatever season, however long the season, that God determines and watch and eventually revival will come. Revival is birthed in selflessness and is usually extinguished by selfishness. And so this will be our last point, but one of the hardest thing about studying revivals of history is seeing how they died. You see these great moves of God and all of the selfless sacrifice that the men that started it went through and all of the torment that they endured and how God used them so mightily for it and what a blessing it was and God starts moving and these great things start happening and God's name is getting proven to the people. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes up who didn't go through the blood, sweat, and tears, who didn't go through the trying, who didn't go through the fire. Somebody comes and steps up that thinks they need to be seen. They need a platform. They think that they deserve it, but they don't know the years that have been put into the toiling that the Lord has chosen. And then you see the selfishness rise up. And then there's usually a, a usurping, a takeover, there's a split. There's something that happens that causes the fire to fall. You see this in Azusa Street. The man that founded the Azusa Street revival was so timid and, and humble that he would stick his head in a milk carton to pray because he didn't want people to see him. And God was moving in such power. But these people that started to rise up and, and take over and just take platform and Eventually, he ended up dying of a heart attack, and they turned it into nothing like what he originally had. His, move, his revival was based on holiness and unity. Because this is what happened. Revival is birthed in selflessness, but then the selfish ones rise up, and because they have not had that time with the Lord to have that rhema word, they have to start making stuff up. So they don't have direction from the Lord to see what God really wants to do. So they come up with these crazy ideas. And that was one of the issues that started the breakdown and the division in the Azusa Street Revival. Somebody who, who decided, you know what? We don't want anyone coming unless they have a necktie on. And some of them were like, most of these people can't afford neckties. So there started to be a division. So the person that decided, I think we should just have neckties. Where did that come from? 
It didn't come from hours of seeking the Lord on his face. It came from, I just want to have some say-so in this, so I'm going to interject myself so that I can feel like I'm part of this and start taking control and authority. Selfishness kills revival. Get on your face. And I would say for leadership or any of you that God ever uses in that aspect, stand for God. And don't be afraid to shut it down, put it out, whatever you have to do, stand for God. And if you have to say, I would have rathered, and I'm sure God would have rathered, Seymour, the guy who originally started that revival, to just walk out of that place and go stand on another street corner and let the revival follow him there than to let the whole thing die and him die of a heart attack from the weight and the stress of the whole situation. The revival will follow the one that is truly pure of heart. That's what happened with Samuel. Eli died. His children died. The Lord was no longer in Shiloh, but the Lord followed Samuel. There was still revival. There was still power, but it followed him because he didn't give up or he didn't die with it. So when the enemy comes against you in a situation where it's overtaken, don't let it discourage you to the point of absolutely just shutting it down. Just go, go with it somewhere else if you have to, but let revival come. Let revival come. Let revival come because I truly feel like God wants revival. Everything that is required and needed for revival is already there. We just have to let it come. And you have to let it come by laying down self-will, self-ideas, self-desires, self-attention, self, just self. Pour the wax off the candle and let the fire burn. Father, we come before you, all of us, in one mind and one accord, with one heart before our risen Lord, and we cry out, God, let revival come. Lord, pour it out upon us. Lord, we love you and we need you. And we understand that this entire nation is in the same place that Nineveh was. And the only hope for it is to cry out for salvation. Lord, that you would step in to the situation and pour yourself out. God, we humble before you and we repent. Lord, we seek your face and your wisdom and your way. We want to be in right standing with it. We give you all the praise and glory, knowing that there is no hope in and of ourselves. But we are willing to humble ourselves and cry out to the only one who can truly help God save this nation. Bring an awakening. Save this generation. That there would not be a great loss, but a great influx to the foot of the cross. God, that you would cause us to be positioned, to be your mouthpiece, to be used to bring a wave of truth to this nation. It is our prayer of desperation that you allow the people to know the truth, to hear the truth, and to make their choice. We pray that it be for you, but let them not stay in deceit. God, we come before you humbly and we pray Let there be one more wave of truth. God, we need you. Prove yourself to this generation. They've not seen you in a real way. They've been so lied to and so deceived. They don't even know what to believe. God, we are begging on bended knees. Step in. Show yourself so real with the holy visitation before this nation that they cannot deny. 
Lord, if they reject you, let it be from outright rebellion and not from deception. Lord, let them know the truth. Let them see you and choose. And to do that, God, we have to be willing to speak your truth. And we commit that we will, no matter the cost, that you might back it up with the power of the Holy Ghost. And provide one more chance of salvation from the judgment that will surely come if we don't humble ourselves before you. And walk in your statutes and your truth and rightly represent you. And repent of our sins and the sins of this nation. God, as a body, as the bride, as the church, we are petitioning the throne room of heaven and asking God, reveal yourself to this generation and let revival come. Thank you for listening to Heart of Worship Church podcast. For more podcasts, sermon videos, daily devotions, great new worship music, and more, be sure to download our app by searching Heart of Worship Church in the App Store or Google Play or visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.